Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and child and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Thank you, Jenna. Good morning, church. My name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. It's my honor and privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our fall sermon series, Parables, Parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told. This is our second parable, the parable often titled The Unforgiving Servant. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive into our scripture. Father, you give us your word as the source of life, as the place that we look to encounter you, the living God. So I pray that you would meet us here this morning, that you would use your word to bring us to your presence, that we might be transformed through encountering a living God. And we thank you for for Sunday, for your day, where we can come each week and have that experience of encounter and worship. And so, God, this morning, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you to do something that's going to be rather uncomfortable. I want you to reflect upon a time when someone you loved hurt you deeply. The reason I add the qualifier, someone you loved, is because the fact is that people that we don't really care about don't actually possess the ability to inflict the deepest wounds. We all know this experientially. Those who we don't really care about certainly can hurt us, but not in the same way that a dear friend or a parent or a significant other or a spouse can. For most of us, it's not that hard to recall an event like this. We'd just rather not do it. 
But the reason I want you to do this is because this morning we're going to be talking about forgiveness. And it's my desire that we talk about forgiveness from an existential, experiential perspective, not from a mere cerebral or theoretical perspective. I want to talk about how to forgive Susie or John or Peter rather than talk about some vague idea of forgiveness as merely a virtue. So you got it? Have you brought that memory to the surface? Because I want you to allow that specific hurt to be the focus of your application this morning. Amen? Three points that Jesus makes here that I want to unpack this morning. First, the risk of forgiveness. Secondly, the reason to forgive. And then lastly, the risk of unforgiveness. The risk of forgiveness, the reason to forgive, and lastly, the risk of unforgiveness. So let's begin. Our text begins with a question, and as they often do in the Gospels, this question comes from Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter's my homeboy because he doesn't often think before he speaks. I can relate to that. Anyone else relate? You don't have to raise your hand. So Peter asked this question. He says, so Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like seven times? Is that enough? It's an interesting series of questions here, but what's Peter getting at? John Calvin says that the point Peter is trying to make is that, I quote, if we be so strongly disposed to grant forgiveness... What will be the consequence but that our lenity, I had to look that word up, it means kindness, our lenity shall be an inducement to offend. Calvin's so smart, isn't he? What's his point? Calvin is arguing that the driving force behind Peter's question is a fear that if I keep forgiving people over and over, Jesus, they're going to think I'm soft. And if they think I'm soft, then they'll treat me like a doormat, and they'll walk all over me. So Jesus, clearly you are naive here. You clearly don't understand how people work. You see, unless I limit the number of times that I will forgive someone, I'll get eaten alive out there, and I'll certainly be miserable. And brothers and sisters, we actually miss some of the tone of Peter's question because we're not aware of the historical context. You see, the number seven in ancient Near Eastern culture was used like we would use the number 100 or 1,000. It evoked the idea of an absurdly high number. Therefore, a better way to translate verse 21 in light of this awareness would be, how many times should I forgive him, Jesus? Like a thousand times? And now you can begin to hear the sarcasm, right? And I love this. Jesus' response here is so awesome. You see, he calls Peter's bet, and then he raises him, doesn't he? No, not a thousand times, Peter, but a million. And now Jesus' point begins to come to life. You see, Jesus isn't arguing here that Peter's fears aren't valid. Peter's actually correct here. If you practice forgiveness like this, you really might get taken advantage of. But Jesus' response is that although you might get taken advantage of, or more accurately, although you probably will get taken advantage of if you live this way, 
Peter, that's the risk that you're going to have to take. Why? Which leads us to our second point this morning, the reason to forgive. Why in the world, Peter is asking, would I put myself in a position to be so taken advantage of by practicing habitual, perpetual forgiveness? And it's here that Jesus decides to once again use a parable to answer the question. So let's dive into the story together. There's this beautiful parallelism that is present in this story. If you study the passage, it just jumps right off the page. We've got these two encounters between a money lender and a money lendee, the one who owes the debt. And when a speaker or writer uses this literary technique of parallelism, we need to be mindful that his main points are communicated in the little differences in the stories, where the mirroring breaks down. Does that make sense? So look with me at the two stories. First, we've got a king who is owed 10,000 talents by his servant. 10,000 talents roughly being $2 billion in today's economy. The point being a debt that is absurdly insurmountable in the lifetime of a minimum wage worker. So the king asked to be paid, and the servant obviously can't do it. Therefore, the servant falls on the ground before the, key, before the king and pleads for patience, not mercy. We'll come back to that. And the king, massively important distinction here, ignores the servant's plea for patience and instead splanknizomai, what a cool Greek word, right? Meaning from his heart, he grants the servant mercy. He forgives or cancels out the debt entirely. Now look at story number two. That same servant who had just experienced this unfathomable mercy at the hands of the king goes to a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now the, the amount is debated here, but I think it's safe to say we're talking about a few thousand dollars. Roughly three months wages for a minimum wage worker. And here, the forgiven servant puts the servant in a chokehold. He says, pay me right now or else. And then once again, we see the similarity. The indebted servant falls on the ground. He falls before his fellow servant. And he says, please, please have patience. I'm going to pay you back. Just give me some more time. But this time, however... The servant refuses to grant either patience or mercy. And he has the man thrown in prison until the debt is paid. Alright, so two encounters. Someone who's owed a lot of money, a debtor. Many similarities and yet a few striking differences. I want to highlight the differences for us now. The first that we see here is that the characters... And the encounters are very different in position and status. It's so important that we see this. Story number one, the interaction is between a king and a servant. Two people who are far from on an equal playing field, right? And yet in, in the story, the second story, the interaction is between two servants, equals in the eye of society. I don't know if you've ever been in financial trouble before, but if you have... What this normally looks like is you owe lots of money to lots of different people. So how do you decide who you're going to pay first? And if you've ever been in a situation like this, you, you automatically know the answer. The answer is you pay the scariest person first, right? 
the one who has the most ability to make you suffer for not paying. And in this society, the king always holds that trump card. You always pay your debt to him first. The buddy down the street, he can wait, but I got to pay the king and I got to pay him now. But what's shocking here is that the king in this story, he forgoes his status and he acts like a buddy. He acts like a friend. He sees how hard the situation the servant is in. He says, oh man, don't worry about it. We're good. And brothers and sisters, in this society, this would be crazy. This is absurd. What in the world would motivate a king to start forgiving random debt to random people? This would be like getting a note in the mail from SunTrust Bank saying, your mortgage has been dealt with. The house is yours. That just doesn't happen, right? That's crazy. That's what the king does here. The king becomes like a servant. And in a similarly surprising way, the fellow servant, the friend in the story, acts like a king. He goes and searches out his friend, and I think we can rightfully assume that this loan was probably made in the context of relationship. You know how it goes. It's like, hey man, I'm in a bind. Can you help me out a little bit? Kind of thing, just till I get back right. And yet, instead of continuing to treat his fellow servant as a friend, he comes from a position of authority and superiority, and, and he demands restitution. Give me my money now. So you see the role reversal there. It's huge. I want to hold that thought. We'll come back to that. Secondly, there's this enormous difference in the two stories in terms of the amount of money owed. The debt owed back to the king is egregious. It's, it's an impossible debt, one that could never be paid. And yet in story number two, the debt is clearly large but certainly not insurmountable. The fellow servant is in a very good position to be able to pay off the debt in the not-too-distant future. He could work it off. So we see another important difference. The characters are different in their status. The amount is far from the same. And then lastly, and most obviously, the response to the request for patience is very different. The king, as we just said, does what would have been unheard of in this time. And instead of granting more time, he forgives the debt entirely. And yet, in turn, the servant responds much like we would expect the king to. And he refuses the request and exacts justice on the spot. But what does this story have to do with forgiveness? And what is Jesus saying to us about why we should forgive? I think the message of this made-up story is actually quite similar to the real-life story of the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears. If you remember, she's there in the presence of the Pharisees, and she's so moved by the person of Jesus that she falls at his feet, breaks the perfume open, weeping, anoints his feet. And the point of that story being forgiveness inevitably produces in us a heart of forgiveness. And the larger the debt, one would rightly assume, the bigger the heart. And yet our story here reveals a breakdown of this formula, if you will. 
The forgiveness of an immeasurable debt seems to produce no heart of forgiveness at all in the servant. How could this be? It seems fanciful. It seems absurd. This, this scenario would never actually play out in real life, right? How could someone be forgiven so much and in the same breath treat someone so harshly? Robert Capone has some profound insight here in his commentary, and I think he's right on. He says that the only way the servant is able to respond this way is because he profoundly misses the heart behind the king's act. Follow me here. What Capone points out is that the servant must have walked away from the encounter thinking that he had actually duped the king. You see, his request was not for the debt to go away, but instead for more time to pay the king back, which obviously is absurd based on what kind of debt was owed. There was no way more time was going to help. And yet the servant seems to be walking away thinking that his frivolous request for more time, although absolutely absurd, somehow worked. That the king bought it. And therefore, he misses the grace piece entirely. So then he celebrates a successful con rather than the receiving of a priceless gift. You tracking with me? And it's through this monumental misread of the grace and mercy of the king that the servant is able to go and turn and show such cruelty to his fellow servant. Because in spite of the fact that grace kissed him on the lips, he totally missed it. He failed to taste it, and therefore it did not change him. Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to finally step out of the parable and make this personal. This is not merely a message for Peter. It is so profoundly for you and I. And let us be so careful of quickly judging the wicked servant. Because I'm, fra- I'm afraid if we hold up the mirror, we will see that he, the wicked servant, is in fact me. Brothers and sisters, there is a great king, and his name is Jesus. And his servants, you and I, we owe him much. 10,000 talents, that sounds just about right. We owe this debt that we could never possibly pay back, the debt of our sin. And what do we do? We go to the bookkeeper, and he has a record of our sin. He has this list of our debt, and we ask for patience. Give me more time, Jesus. I'll make it right. I'll be good enough. I'll serve you wholeheartedly. I'll read my Bible every day, Jesus. I'll even give 15% to the church. I'll get back in the black. I promise, Jesus. And King Jesus hears our pleas for patience for more time, and he rejects them outright. He knows we have no chance of ever paying back the debt that we owe. And he instead offers mercy. He offers a clean slate. He invites us to walk away debt-free. How does he do it? You know the funny thing about debt? Is that it never just goes away. It always has to be paid one way or the other. Either we pay it or the person that we owe takes it into themselves and pays it for us. But the reality is somebody always pays it. King Jesus cancels our debt through laying down his kingly rights, through becoming a servant 
like us. And he takes our servant's debt into himself and he wipes it away on the cross. His final words say it all, to telestai, meaning paid in full. Therefore, brothers and sisters, whenever we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, this is huge that we embrace this idea. We become the wicked servant who in spite of being forgiven 10,000 talents, grabs the throat of those around us who owe us but a few hundred denarii. And you now begin to see how little we are removed from the character in this story. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning, the risk of unforgiveness. Not only does this parable point out the absurdity of, of unforgiveness in the life of a believer, but also how incredibly costly unforgiveness is. You see, Jesus concludes by highlighting that unforgiveness is not only ridiculous in light of what he has done for us, but also it will destroy you. It will eat you alive. Look with me at verse 34. After the wicked servant has been brought back before the king and he's held accountable for his extreme cruelty, the king executes judgment. Verse 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, or as some translations say, the torturers, until he should pay his debt, which we know is forever. And then Jesus steps fully out of the parable and concludes by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive from your brother from the heart. Now, at first read, this seems like an uncharacteristically harsh picture of Jesus, doesn't it? But I think when we take a closer look at the words anger and deliver, I think you'll see something profoundly different. Look with me first at this word, anger. For those of you who have been taking part in the men's Bible study, in the voice of the heart, some of this will be reviewed to you, but I think... It's worth stating that the anger that we see here is that healthy, righteous anger that Chip Dodd often refers to in the study. It's the anger that motivated Jesus to heal the man with the withered hand, to flip the tables of the money changers in the temple. You see, it's an anger that's longing for more. An anger that sees injustice or suffering and is motivated to action, to fight for justice and for healing. Some would call this passion. I think think that's what we see here in Jesus. You see, he knows the suffering that comes from this way of living, from harboring unforgiveness, and he's angry for more, more for us, longing that we would experience the riches of living out of our forgiveness, this this lifestyle of habitual forgiveness of others. And secondly... When it comes to this word delivered, I think upon closer examination, we see that Jesus is not actually saying, if you you refuse to forgive one another, then I'm going to punish you. I'm going to throw you in jail. I might even torture you. Now, the Greek word here is paradidomai, which means to deliver over. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1 when he says, and God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. You see, the idea here is releasing someone into that which they are already longing for. The image that comes to mind is when I'm carrying my son 
and we arrive at the playground, and he gets all excited, and he says, put me down, Daddy. Let me go. And I set him down, and he's off to the races. You see, I just simply released him to that which he has already resolved that he wants. We hear this same idea in C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce when he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. Lewis here is arguing this same point that in the end, hell is simply a result of God delivering people over to that which they already desire. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Although he is angry for more, he wants so much more for us, for us to live into the joy and freedom of forgiveness. At some point, he's forced to resolve to release people over to that which they so desperately want. To release them over to the torture, if you will, of unforgiveness. But why is unforgiveness so torturous? Why is it so hard? You see, unforgiveness is so torturous because it's birthed, as the text shows us, out of a life of bookkeeping. It's a commitment to continue keeping accounts with God and others, trying desperately and hopelessly to stay in the black, and yet always coming up short. And beyond that, it's a testimony to the fact that we've totally missed grace, isn't it? Capone concludes by saying, to withhold pardon is irrefutable evidence that you haven't really received your pardon. You think you've earned it. Brothers and sisters, to believe you earned it is for grace to kiss you on the lips and you miss it entirely. Listen to how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the horror of this condition in the Jesus Storybook Bible. But Jesus could see inside people, and inside, in their hearts, Jesus saw that they did not love God or other people. They were running away from God, and they thought they didn't need a rescuer. They thought they were good enough because they kept the rules. But sin had stopped their hearts from working properly, and their hearts were hard and cold. Brothers and sisters, when our hearts stop working properly, we are robbed of the true joy, the true life that is to be had in relationship with Christ. A life not of bookkeeping, but of extravagant, unmerited favor. In conclusion, I want us to come full circle. I want you to bring back up that memory of hurt. I want you to picture the face of the person who hurt you, okay? How can we possibly forgive that person for what they've done? You see, what this parable reveals is that the primary thing that hinders us from forgiveness is that we are, we've forgotten that we are a servant, and instead we act like a king, and we demand of other servants what only a king could demand. But how do we get out of that torturous rut? You see, the way out is to begin to see the king that became a servant. It's when we begin to see the debt that was too great to be forgiven placed on that king on that cross. It's when we begin to see that Jesus has burned the books and there's no more record-keeping needed. 
It's when we begin to see that we didn't earn it, but it's ours for the keeping. And finally, it's when we see the face of Jesus, when we see his face while looking at the face of the one who has hurt us so deeply, that we, the forgiven, find the power to forgive. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we need to see your face. There's no hope for us to get out of this torturous rut of unforgiveness unless we see you, the king who became a servant. And we realize that we have been forgiven so much. And we receive that gift of grace and it changes us. And we begin to recognize ourselves as those who have been forgiven much. And then forgiveness begins to flow out of our hearts. God, I don't minimize the hurts that have been felt in this room. They are weighty. And yet, God, I think that what this parable teaches us is that in Christ, there is the power to forgive the deepest hurt from those who we love dearly. And so, God, would you fuel us, would you empower us to do just that? To forgive as those who have been deeply forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.